Examining Ethics with Andy Cullison is hosted by the Janet Prindle Institute for Ethics. I'm Andy Cullison. Welcome to Season 2 of Examining Ethics. Our first guest for our second season is the esteemed scholar of race and gender, Peggy McIntosh. Her groundbreaking essays on whiteness and white privilege, published in the 1980s and 90s, are still helping to frame discussions about race today. Whites want to feel good about ourselves. We were taught to feel good about ourselves. The corollary is we were taught to make others feel bad about themselves. We were taught to have great faith in our ability and our basic goodness. Stay tuned for more from Peggy McIntosh. We'll also hear from philosopher Allison Bailey. Thanks for joining us. The producers of the show, Christian Weishart and Sandra Burton, are here with me to set the stage for today's discussion. I'm Christian. And I'm Sandra. So the title of today's show is The Burden of Whiteness. And uh, Sandra, when you first mentioned that as a possibility for the title, it immediately raised a bunch of alarm bells because um, (laughs) I'm afraid that people will take it like, oh, it's so hard to be white. Like, oh, what a problem it is to be white in America. (laughs) Um, But I'm wrong, right? That's not why you suggested that as the title. That's not what we mean here, right? No, it is definitely not what we mean. So the reference is actually to the poem, The White Man's Burden, written in 1899 by Rudyard Kipling, which he used to encourage the U.S. to colonize the Philippines. The poem basically argues that it's the moral responsibility of the white man to civilize the third world. And I see this episode and this topic as a sort of rejection of that poem, especially the way it uses the term burden and its racist implications. But we are also playing with the idea of of the burden on this show, We're trying to explore what is the true burden of white people, as in, what should white people be working towards? What is the moral responsibility here? And I think a good place to start, and I think where we're starting today, is just to talk about some facets of whiteness in general, specifically um, what it means to be white in America. And we're going to be talking about two parts of whiteness, the privileges that come with being white, and then some problematic behaviors that white people engage in when they talk about race. And so we're kind of playing with a second meaning to the word burden in our title today. These problematic behaviors often place an extra burden on people of color, on top of the necessity of navigating a racist system every day. So I'm suggesting that there is a real burden on white people to change individual behavior as well as the larger systems that privilege them. But I also want to call attention to the fact that these behaviors and systems place a burden on people of color in this country. So there are some reasons to think that we have a system that unfairly favors the interests of white people. Given that, doesn't it seem worth thinking about whether that imposes a burden on white people to take responsibility for that and do something about it? Yeah. Something that's happening a lot is that well-meaning white people are asking people of color what whites can do about racism. And by doing this, white people are unintentionally placing that additional burden on people of color. And in response, people of color have been calling for more white people to take responsibility for racist structures and to figure out that answer for themselves. So this episode is an attempt to join in a conversation that is already happening to figure out what the heck white people can do but not under the assumption that we are going to fix a racist system by February 3rd. I need to edit my to-do list then. That was totally on my to-do list, you know, make a (laughs) meal plan, 
Figure out new childcare, fix racism. <laughs> yeah, crossing that off. Today on the show, renowned scholar Peggy McIntosh will be joining us to talk about white privilege. Then we'll discuss one of those problematic behaviors Sandra and Christian were talking about, quote-unquote white talk, with the philosopher Allison Bailey. In both of these conversations, we will be joined by the director of DePaul's Women's, Gender, and Sexuality Studies, Tamara Babuff. Professor Babuff created a lecture series on DePaul University's campus called American Whiteness, which brought both McIntosh and Bailey to campus to explore the idea of whiteness in America. And just for the listeners who may not have made the connection, Examining Ethics is hosted by the Prindle Institute, which is part of DePaul University. Professor Burbuff's series was mind-blowing for me. Before this lecture series, I never would have thought to focus specifically on whiteness in a discussion on race. Yeah, I think our listeners would be curious to know why she focused on whiteness. Here she is explaining the lecture series. I created it in a specific context. Mm -hmm. Um, I think it's not a unique conversation, but it is um, it's trying to shift the way we think about our racial tensions. You know, instead of looking sort of outward and what do they want and what's happening to them, but to recognize that there's a center that keeps creating this violence and harm and trying to name the, see the, the center. And often we don't see things that we haven't named. It just struck me that, um, and as a person of color, maybe I'm more sensitized to this than some other people might be, that when we talk about race, we put a lot of burden on the people who are affected by racism. And it's not that their experiences are not important, but the problem is not their experience. The problem is the thing that creates their experience. And I felt that there was a huge unexamined center that in the scholarship is called whiteness. Mm -hmm. And whiteness is something that is a form of dominance, is a form, it's, it's the center that creates the margins, it's the center that creates the harm, it's the center that covers its tracks, it's business as usual. And so whiteness is a term for naming um, um, a series of assumptions about the world and refusals to change it. Before we go any further, I wanted to tell a little story. Whenever we post an article about race on our online magazine, The Prindle Post, we always get the same comments. Stop trying to start a race war, or this is reverse racism. And since Andy is a philosopher and loves to debate, he wanted to present his defense of acknowledging the issue of whiteness. So I thought it would be important to say something about the term whiteness. It's not racist to note that things go differently in society for you based on the color of your skin. There's nothing racist about saying that you're more likely to have an easier time getting a job or you're more likely to have an easier time not getting arrested and so on if you're white. So if it turns out that there is in fact a system in place that strongly favors the interests of white people, uh, there's nothing racist about acknowledging that such a system exists and we need a name for it. What should we call a system like that? Well, whiteness seems to be a good label. So I don't think there's anything racist about acknowledging that such a system exists. And if there is such a system, we need a label for it. Why not pick a label that descriptively tells us what that system is? A major component of whiteness is the privilege that comes from having white skin in the U.S. Whiteness, and specifically white privilege, were for a long time virtually invisible at least to white people. 
1988, our guest Peggy McIntosh wrote the groundbreaking essay, White Privilege and Male Privilege, a personal account of coming to see correspondences through work in women's studies. She also wrote the now famous essay, White Privilege, Unpacking the Invisible Knapsack. These two pieces lay the groundwork for our current understanding of white privilege. It's rare for white people to consider racism their problem. There is usually a feeling that white people don't belong in discussions of race, or it's not really about them. But as Peggy shows us, white people do need to do their own work to deconstruct their privilege, or their knapsack, as she calls it. Let's jump in. Here's Christian talking to Peggy McIntosh and Tamara Babuff. Sandra will shepherd us through the interview today. Peggy McIntosh, welcome to Examining Ethics. Thank you for being here. Thank you. I'm glad to be here. So your work um, centers on, or often centers on, this idea of white privilege. Um, for listeners who may not be familiar with that concept, could you, could you kind of briefly explain what white privilege is? White privilege is one of many forms of privilege. Mm -hmm. Anytime you're born with something, some aspect of your life that pushes you ahead in an in a unfair way within a culture that favors that aspect of your personality, then you're experiencing privilege. It can be having to do with body type or your parents' relation to money or your region of the world or the religion you were born to and so on and so forth. There are many forms of unearned advantage. But white privilege is unearned advantage that advances you because you are white in a society that favors whites. In your writing, you use the metaphor of an invisible knapsack of, of privileges, um, which I think is a, an incredibly apt metaphor um, because it describes privilege perfectly, right? Because it's something that we don't ever really notice unless we're kind of tuned into it. So when did you first notice your own knapsack of, of privilege? Well, it was a parallel move, a lateral move from noticing that men had a knapsack of privilege that they didn't notice. Mm -hmm. And it was in the context of seminars I was teaching at the Wellesley College Club in the college where I work in Massachusetts. And it happened several years in a row that the men who had occupied all the spots in the curriculum didn't see how we could they could get women into the curriculum, even though they agreed that we're half the world's population. And some of them even agreed with me that we've had half the world's lived experience. The men, to a person, said, we're sorry, we love this seminar, we love studying this new research on women, but you can't put this research, these results of this research, into the first-year courses that students take. And they didn't realize it, but they were insulting as they answered the question. One of them said, when you're laying the foundation blocks for knowledge in those introductory courses, you can't put in soft stuff. And that meant that all he had been reading by and about women was still, to him, soft. Now, actually, we were blessed by his candor Mm -hmm. then we knew where we stood. Mm -hmm. It was insulting to be told that all of the scholarship on your sex, uh, female, was soft. And another year of also a very nice man, and we are valued, we value his con candor. He said, you can't put in women early. <laughs> you, um, he said, uh, uh, he said, 
that when the students are in their first year, they're trying to choose their discipline. That's their major. And if you want to teach them to think in the disciplined way, you can't put in extras. (laughs) And all these guys are born of a woman. But none of the men disagreed with him that women are extra. But of, of course, we're all born of women, too. I was asking myself, what has happened to these men's minds to make them feel mm. that our half of the population is soft? And I finally figured out, once I got past the idea that, well, they're so nice, how could these comments be so oppressive? Because if you're nice, you're not oppressive. And are they are they nice or are they oppressive? Then I got over the idea that you had to choose. Mm-hmm that a person is either nice or oppressive. I decided that actually niceness has nothing to do with it. These are very nice men. But that they had been taught a kind of litany of truths, which they had drunk in, and I had too, going to college, that men have knowledge. Men publish and profess knowledge Mm -hmm. as professors. And men run the big university presses, and they run the big research universities. And they have taken in the idea that knowledge itself is male, Mm. and men are knowers. And that explained a lot to me. Mm -hmm. It isn't that they're not nice men. It's that they're still the main picture. They're the main main chorus on the entree. Mm -hmm. They are the the real thing. Mm -hmm. And we are soft or we are extra. Mm -hmm. Because I had read black women's essays that said, almost in so many words, certainly strongly implied, white women are oppressive Mm -hmm. to work with. I had been struggling with this thought, how can they think we are oppressive to work with? We're nice. (laughs) And I also had this oppressive idea very racist idea, but this was myself in 1980. I especially think we're nice if we work with them. Mm-hmm. You can hear the racial condescension, superiority in that. Mm-hmm. I thought, oh, dear. Now, for a couple of years, I hoped that I had been so nice that they hadn't noticed my patronizing racial attitudes, but I got over that. I decided, yes, they did notice. They were working with me because they thought well, here's a white woman who's at least trying, mm. but she doesn't get it. And But in any case, they knew that niceness has nothing to do with it, that white women, period, were, were oppressive to work with. Noticing that the men were oppressive and unconsciously so, I had to shift over laterally to, yes, I was oppressive mm. and unconsciously so. And it isn't that I was putting other people down so much as I was neglecting my own experience of being exempt from all the oppressions that they experienced. And I said, how can I describe this? Because I'd never seen it before. How can I describe it? And my family was always interested in camping. And I thought, well, it's as though I was born with a knapsack full of assets that was put on my back at birth. I didn't ask for it, and I can't be blamed for it, but I can count on on reaching back and unzipping those pockets Mm -hmm. and cashing in on the things in the knapsack. And that struck me at the beginning, they were like freeze-dried food, emergency blanket, guidebooks, code books, Mm -hmm. letters of introduction, in fact, blank checks. 
those who weren't given such a knapsack can see it on my back, can see that I can cash in on those things. Mm -hmm. And they can also see I don't know I'm carrying it. Mm -hmm. So it's an invisible, weightless knapsack of unearned advantages that help me get ahead and survive. Mm. So so this invisible knapsack is something that you, you say is given to, to people at birth, right? We, yes. we receive it at birth, whether we want it or not. If I can be permitted to extend the metaphor a little bit, in some ways it's an heirloom that's passed down, right? And, and I'm the mother of two little white boys. Um, and I don't, I, the, the heirloom is not precious to me but it's there. I have, I have no choice but to confront it. So how can I help my two little boys? How can, kind of more generally, how can we help young children see their knapsack from a very young age? And how can we kind of begin to try to make it more visible, make it a little heavier? As I think back on my own parents, I realized they did say to me, Things like, always remember you're privileged. Hmm. But what they meant by it is, always remember you're lucky to have um, ten fingers and ten toes. And now they did add whiteness because it hadn't yet occurred to them. But it was seen as good luck to have had amassed so much. Hmm. It didn't yet have to do with an over-advantage that corresponded to some people's disadvantage. I like the extension when you said these are heirlooms. That's Tamara Bobuff, who joined Peggy and Christian during the interview. She's off mic, so the sound quality is a little rough here. Mm -hmm. it, 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 it makes it clear to me why seeing and taking off the backpack would be seen as an act of betrayal or disloyalty or something that, you know, was just a very sort of cruel and heartless thing to do um, towards people who just love you and want the best for you. If I try to think about how to challenge you know, the racism of my parents or my grandparents, that's harder for me to think about, right? Challenging that than it is to think about, you know, passing a legacy on. Or... Yeah, but the legacy, I think, is not so much the racism, but the benefits. Mm -hmm. You know yeah. what I mean? Like the yeah. wealth. It's interesting that the benefits that white people gain from racist structures are often unrecognizable to the white person who reaps those same benefits. It's strange to think that entire generations of white people might have lived without the knowledge that they have received any benefit at all. And even if white people are forced to acknowledge that they are better off, you usually hear protests of, well, my parents pulled themselves up by their bootstraps, or they worked hard for where they are today, as if all privileges are born out of this hard work. Christian asked Peggy what she thought of this idea of an American meritocracy. Americans especially are raised to believe in this myth of meritocracy. Um, in in Ta-Nehisi Coates's recent book, Between the World and Me, he calls it dreamland. Um, and he calls, you know, people who believe themselves to be white, the dreamers, right? Um, and, and part of the dream is that everything we have, we've earned. And we did it by ourselves through individual bootstrapping effort. Um, and, and a lot of a lot of white Americans want to believe that, you know, racism is you is, as you say, kind of an individual act of meanness that you yes. can control. Right. That individual acts then can stop or control. Is there a way to begin to help, um, you know, students or young people see the world in a more systemic way or um, in a way that kind of begins to 
to to try to shed that that myth of the individual that we we love so much in America. I think teachers do need to work against five common myths and to say right up front, these are all myths and they help to keep racism in place. Mm -hmm. Each one has some degree of truth in it, but only a little degree of truth in it. And then I think teachers need to tell students in the myth of meritocracy, two assumptions are made, and I don't want you to make these assumptions. One is that the unit of society is the individual. That's not true. Hmm. You all have, you were born into relation with other human beings. And the second part of the myth is that whatever you end up with when you die must be what you individually, as an individual, wanted and worked for and earned and deserved. And that is the myth of meritocracy. And it is untrue. And it keeps power in the hands of those who already have the most power. So you need to unlearn it. There are four more major myths that teachers, even in elementary grades, should be taking on. One is the myth of white racelessness, that whites don't have race. Others have race, and whites are just normal. They need to tell the children, you all have ethnic backgrounds and and skin color um, and heritage that comes from different parts of the world. Another myth they should really take on, even in elementary school, is the myth of monoculture, which is the idea that there's just one big world here in America, and we're all experiencing that world in pretty much the same way. And it's a myth. And the next myth people should take on, teachers should take on, and have the bravery to stand up to, is the myth of manifest destiny. Manifest destiny is the theory they had that God intended to him to, us to expand, European Europeans to expand. First, by taking all of Indian land, and second, by taking the Philippines, and that God was on the side of those who did that. The final myth is the myth of white managerial and moral superiority, and it's very hard to get the kids, including me in sixth grade, to believe anything else. Um, It's that those who are in charge are really the best. So whites are in charge of everything because we do it the best. It's a very deeply held white belief (laughs) that those who are up top are up top because they're the best. Anything that jostles that sense that we deserve to be in charge and that we do it well Mm -hmm. creates a terrible reaction in the psyches of whites. Very, very upset. And they use various defensive maneuvers to get back into the position of feeling good about ourselves. Whites want to feel good about ourselves. We were taught to feel good about ourselves. And that, the corollary is, we were taught to make others feel bad about themselves. We were taught to have great faith in our ability and our basic goodness. If you start to talk about racism, you'll find even whites who say, I'm colorblind, I don't see race, they have a kind of interior panic. (laughs) 
so you write that oppression often takes two forms. There's an active, obvious form of oppression, forms of oppression, and then there are forms of oppression that are embedded and not so obvious, at least to the oppressor, him or herself. Um, so, you know, it's fairly easy for me to avoid putting on a white robe and placing a flaming cross in somebody's yard. I can, I can avoid that. I don't want to do that. Right. But, but challenging or avoiding that second embedded form of impression of oppression, excuse me, is not something that an individual can tackle on their own. Um, so, so in what ways can individuals even begin to address kind of systemic embedded institutional forms of racism? Well, in one of my papers called White Privilege and Account to Spend, I compared white privilege. In, I wouldn't jettison the knapsack image, but I added another image mm -hmm. for people who wanted a more positive, images, a positive image. I said white privilege is like in a, a bank account I was given at birth. Mm -hmm. I can't be ashamed about it. I didn't ask for it. But the bank account has allowed me to purchase a good life. And now I have the choice. Do I want to spend down some of that unearned bank account money in the service of weakening the system that gave it to me? Mm. And I can make that choice to spend it down. And because the bank account is made of unearned white privilege, it'll continue to refill. No matter how I spend it down, I will continue to be given the benefit of the doubt that fills it up. So in, I, in that paper, I wrote a list of 16 ways in which I use my white skin privilege to work against the more embedded forms. For example, when I lived in Bethesda, Maryland, our street was all white. So a group of us went door to door to ask families, would you agree not to move out, not to sell your property if a family of color move in? And over two years, we got every single family on the street to agree that they wouldn't sell. And then we had realtors who weren't showing anything in my part of Bethesda to African-American families, hmm. even if they were in the State Department. Hmm. We got the realtors to agree to sell to a person of color who asks. Nobody moved out. And the family that moved in is still there. Then another form the activism took is that the accountant in our building had a 10th grade son. He was stopped by the Newton police. When he was coming home one day, one night, um, driving his car, the police stopped him quite near his own home, asked to see his ID, and they decided he must have stolen it. So they made him go home and wake up his parents to prove that he belonged in the neighborhood that was a black family. So here they are standing at the top of the stairs, top of the banister, in their night clothes, having to look down on two officers who have taken in their son because they think he's forged his credentials. And the woman this happened to said to me, you know, we'll never forget it. Mm -hmm. To them, it was just an incident. Oh, sorry, we were wrong. 
But to them, her and her husband, they'll never forget it. Mm -hmm. To them, they have no re they already knew in a way they had no recourse to the police in Newton Mass. But now they have reason to mistrust the police even more actively, mm -hmm. that they would do that to their son and to them. Mm -hmm. The insult of it, the ignorance of the whites not knowing that black families were living in that part of Newton. So I went to the police over that. Then there was on the police blotters, thank goodness, in Newton, Mass., the police have to report what they've done each week. So there was another incident in which a, a young black man was pulled over and was um, thought to have forged credentials and turned out and was exonerated. So I went to two different police departments over that. Now, in the first one... I didn't know what to say when the presiding officer said to me, we're just trying to protect you, ma'am. From what? Well, yeah. So, <laughs> I, that, <laughs> so I thought that over, you know, from what? And then by the time the second police chief uh, captain told me that, I had an answer. And when he said... We're just trying to protect you, ma'am. I said, oh, no, you're not. This is a protection racket. You have caused the danger that you're claiming you rescue me from. And the danger is bad race relations, and you are causing them. They were not expecting this little professor to chew them out like that. And I didn't get any satisfaction at the time from it because I was afraid of the police now, and also I wasn't in the habit of calling people crooks, mm -hmm. <laughs> and I was calling them crooks. Mm -hmm. So it wasn't a pleasure then, but it is a pleasure to me now to remember that I had the courage to call them and use mob language to do it. <laughs> <laughs> that, that brings up an interesting point, um, because that that's a perfect example of exactly how we we white people can spend. And I think we white women, right? We sweet, nice little white women can spend down our bank account of privilege, right? Because nobody expects it from us. They weren't going to, you know, handcuff you and throw you in you no. know, a jail cell for saying what you did, right? No. Yes. Um, and so that's one way in which we can kind of spend down that, that account. Yes. And it'll refill in the sense those same cops won't arrest me the next day for speeding, mm -hmm. even if they should, mm -hmm. because I've just gone into the great white mass of people they do protect. Peggy made it clear that it's not just huge issues like racial profiling or housing discrimination that we need to pay attention to. She also explains that we need to tackle racism in things like band-aid color options and crayon color options. My sister and I worked on Crayola to change the um, flesh tone crayons. Now, some people say, why would that matter? Well, to small children who can't find a crayon that matches their skin, it matters a whole lot. Mm -hmm. We persuaded the company to vary the available skin tones. They did a cynical thing, which we then had to critique in turn. They put out a little box called the Multicultural Skin Tone Box. Okay, it had in it just four of the browns that are in the collection of the 124 
oh, sorry, six. They pulled out six, and then they added black and white. And when we said, what is the black and white for? They said, well, that's for blending. But if you remember crayons, they don't blend. It's not like pastels. And we said, this, this is a cynical thing. You haven't. So do your research. So my sister and I said, go to the cosmetic counters of Chicago, Boston, Seattle, L.A., and buy the actual foundation tones that women of color purchase for themselves and make a multicultural, an honest multicultural skin tone box. So that time they changed. They made a skin tone box of 16 colors. Hmm. So we said, good for you. But was that a merely cosmetic thing to do? No, that was racial activism we were doing. So race sort of permeates not just the big cosmic stuff, right? It yes. permeates little tiny things that you buy at a drugstore, right? Yes. It, it permeates everything, every aspect of culture. Peggy McIntosh, thank you so much for joining us. This was great. You're very welcome. I like your questions. Wow. That interview was great. She has that way of explaining things to you, like she's giving words to feelings that you've had all along. I worry, though, that there are still people out there thinking, okay, so I have privilege, but it's not my fault, so why should I care? Yeah, this is an interesting question. The, the challenge is, why should I be held responsible for the actions of other white people? The short answer is that no one's holding you responsible in the sense that they think you're guilty or that you're blameworthy in some way. Uh, they're just asking you to acknowledge this and then maybe do something about it to try and help correct some of this injustice. Now, the, the reply might be, but that's the thing I object to. You, you, you expect me to do certain things. You expect me to behave in a certain way. You expect me to change the way I want to live to correct for the injustice caused by other people. Why should I be expected to do that? Now, the first answer is short uh, and simple. Correcting for injustice almost always falls on people who are not the causes of the injustice. So it's not surprising. That's so true. Like the people you see working for towards poverty, like nuns, they didn't, nuns didn't cause poverty. And so, and so it's not weird to think that there's, we're, we're called to correct for injustices that we didn't cause. But a, a more precise answer that speaks directly to the question, um, if, if going about living your life the way you want to means continuing to have your life go well because of resources that were unfairly distributed to you, then it's not unreasonable to ask you to think carefully about how you use those goods and think about whether you should use them at all. So uh, here's an analogy. Suppose someone stole a million dollars and left it to you. You don't get to just spend that money. We'd think you have to give it back. You didn't earn it, and furthermore, it was taken from someone else. Suppose that money was taken, and for whatever reason, you're now the only person who can spend it. You can't give it back. If it's going to be spent, you have to be the spender. We'd still expect you to think about how you spend it. We'd say either don't spend it at all or spend it in a more selfless way. Uh, note in these examples, you yourself haven't done anything wrong. No one's blaming you for this good fortune that you have. But it seems fair to expect that you behave in certain ways moving forward. Stay tuned after a short break for our discussion of White Talk with philosopher Allison Bailey. Welcome back to the show. I'm Andy Cullison, your host. With me again are producers Sandra Burton and Christian Weishart. We've just heard from Peggy McIntosh about white privilege, what it is, how it's passed from one generation down to the next, and what white people can do to begin to dismantle it. 
So white privilege is one facet of whiteness in America, and this privilege is often invisible to white people. Um, and in fact, you could argue that whites um, might be taught to ignore or dismiss their own privilege. So, so this leads us to another facet of whiteness, a phenomenon known as white talk. So if white privilege is like an invisible knapsack, white talk is a way of ensuring that the knapsack is kept invisible, that it's kept unseen. We should explain to our listeners what white talk is. Okay, so there's this cluster of similar speech patterns performed by white people that get repeated over and over in conversations about race, and it's known in academia as white talk. And these speech patterns effectively shut down conversations about race. So Andy sat down with philosopher Allison Bailey, who writes about these speech patterns. We asked her to give us some examples of white talk. So it sounds like this. You can't prove that Eric Gardner was beaten because he was a black man. White people get harassed by cops all the time. You just don't hear about it because we don't complain. And yeah, I've heard that black lives matter, but really, you know, all lives matter, including cops' lives. Are you sure that the reason campus police stopped you and asked you if you were a student was because of your race? Could it be that they just didn't recognize you or that they made a mistake and thought you were someone else? I'm from a poor white family. We suffer too, and you don't hear us complaining. If you stick to your dreams and work hard, then anyone can make it. The problem is that people of color make everything about race. It's an excuse for everything. Oh, right, right. I understand the problem. I've read James Baldwin and Bell Hooks. I'm queer, so I know what it feels like to be oppressed. I don't think of myself as white. I'm Irish, Dutch, and German. Look, I'm a good person. I'm not prejudiced. My ancestors never owned slaves. Anyway, that was a really long time ago, and I'm not responsible for the Indian Removal Act, Japanese internment, or Jim Crow laws. I wasn't even born yet. Yeah, I know that America has a history of racism and genocide, but you really can't dwell on the tragedies of the past. Things are so much better now. We have a black president. And anyway, I'm not the problem. It's only bad whites, those racists that are a problem. I'm not like my bigoted father. The problem is that some people don't treat others equally. And just to be clear, I have friends that are Asian. My church does work in the Chicago barrios. It's not like I'm a member of the Arizona militia or something. Trust me, my heart's in the right place. I'm a good white person. There's no problem here. It was depressingly easy to find examples just like the ones Allison gives in the real world. My great-grandparents came here with absolutely nothing. And when they got off the boat, no one was there saying, Hey, look, more white people. Hell, let's help them. My parents weren't here 400 years ago. My family arrived here way after the Civil War. We had nothing to do with it. You have a multiracial family, and nobody cares about race. It's the last thing happening. I have Asian friends. I have friends of every different race. Half my friends are black. I could care less what race someone is. I've never, I was never taught to really notice it. The whole thing about Black Lives Matter started as a, as a, you know, as a rallying cry, and then they made more out of it. It's, it's just stupid. It's silly. All <laughs> lives matter. Every life matters. Now, white folks aren't getting the same opportunities. It's kind of almost reverse discrimination in that way. There actually are black people who have money, Anderson. I don't know why you continue <laughs> to make this a racial thing there. I'm the least racist person that you have ever met. I am the least racist person. You know, no white person is immune from saying stuff like this. I'm guilty. But, but a skeptic might say, like, oh, great, you know, academics like Alison Bailey have identified this group of speech patterns. So what? Are these speech patterns a good thing? Are they a bad thing? Like, why are we talking about this? Well, whether or not we think it's a 
good thing or a bad thing. At the very least, it's unproductive. It and it and furthermore, it looks like a suspiciously easy way for us as white people to avoid having difficult conversations about race. If it even seems like there's a phenomena that makes conversations about race difficult, then that phenomena is worthy of examination. When I spoke with Allison and Tamara, we got to talking about how white people use white talk to avoid certain kinds of conversations. Here's Allison explaining. So they find ways of detouring and distracting the question about deep questions about racial privilege in the United States and turning them into exercises in goodness or exercises in meritocracy. Oh, everybody's discriminated against. Oh, all black, all lives matter, not just black lives. So those, those moves are harmful, right? They, they erase the testimony of people of color mm -hmm. and they're difficult to hear in classroom settings right? They can change the caliber of the conversation. I'd like to focus on not just, you know, what white people lose, but who's doing the emotional labor. And also just the, um, how deep our resistance is to this. And so I'm trying to figure out quite how to say this. So it's not like, oh gosh, we're losing out on knowledge. Boy, that's bad. You know, and we need people of color to educate us. That's, that's not what I'm saying. But the fact that you shut down about something that someone is saying to you, this is important to me. This is important about my world. And I want you to hear it. And white people say, oh, I never owned slaves. My parents, you know, were Irish immigrants. That's harmful. That's terrible, right? Okay. So white talk shuts down conversations about race. White talk is a way of resisting a certain kind of knowledge. Couldn't we just say, well, okay, a lot of white people are doing this bad thing that's shutting down. Why can't people of color just continue the conversation without white people? Then it's just the white people's loss if they don't participate. I had a similar kind of thought, but then Allison set me straight on this. It's a problem when white people refuse to talk about race. Epistemically speaking, we're members of communities, so we create knowledge together. Wait, what does epistemic mean? Epistemic just means related to knowledge or justification or reasonable belief. Oh, okay. Got it. Epistemically speaking, we're members of communities, so we create knowledge together. So imagine white folks doing white talk shutting down as part of that epistemic community. What does that do to that community if we don't hear testimonies of people of color about everyday microaggressions, or if we dismiss them as, well, you made the decision to do this, or that's because you don't work hard enough? So because people learn together in communities, when white people perform white talk, and shut down conversations about race, she's saying that it actually prevents knowledge about other races from entering into the white community bubble. And while Allison doesn't explicitly say this, I suspect she'd agree that part of the problem here is that by removing themselves from these conversations, people engaging in white talk prevent certain things from becoming part of our shared knowledge base. Epistemic communities create a set of shared beliefs, what we would all agree it's safe to assume everyone else knows. If enough white people stay out of these conversations on race, they can basically prevent certain facts about racial injustice from ever being part of our shared knowledge base. So then isn't the answer just to, if you're a white person, kind of be more aware of, of white talk and stop doing it? That was, that was sort of my first thought, and, uh, but according to Allison, the short answer here is no. Here she is to explain. Cleaning up our, our discursive practices is not going to eliminate 500 years of deep structural racism. I don't want to silence white talk in the same way I would want to just cure a symptom, mm -hmm. because I think it's a point of entry again. And so it's like, okay, what's this doing? Mm -hmm. 
And white folks, if you say, don't say that, that's bad, it will be like, okay, I'm bad. Forget it. It's too much work. So you don't want white folks to shut down. You want to say, whoa, that's, you went there. Why did you go there? Mm -hmm. And not to, huh, there's something deep and structural and power oriented that I need to think about. Mm -hmm. You went to, um, I have black friends or something like that. Mm -hmm. So it's like, wow, that's not the question I asked, but you answered it in this way that pulled the conversation onto, um, in epistemic home turf where, it's your home turf, mm-hmm. right? Mm-hmm. And you get to play the game you want on that turf. So you can't just take out white talk and everything will be okay, according to Allison. Because white talk is sort of like a fever. It's a symptom. Just getting rid of the symptom isn't enough. So if you notice this bad thing like a fever and ask, how do we get the fever to go away? You're not zeroing in on the most important issue. Okay, so if white talk is just a symptom, what's the disease? Tamara Babaf joined us in this conversation as well. Here she explains the disease, according to her, that is creating symptoms like white talk. And I think it's, yeah, it's more than talk. And I think we can't lose sight that this is about power over people. So unequally positioned groups. And who gets to say it's getting too hot? And who gets to determine what's Mm -hmm. a valuable conversation? Who gets to determine... It's now and not mm-hmm. later. And so to me, this is always about power. So we have people who exert extraordinary control over the lives and the livelihoods of other people. And those are the people, so we have to examine their investment or they have to examine their investment in something that is not democratic, mm-hmm. you know, that wants to maintain its authority over other people to tell them what reality is. Okay, so we could say then that the disease that creates white talk is something like structural racism or structural systems of domination that leave some people in control over others. And I'd like to add, I don't think it's merely the existence of these structures. I think it's partially the discomfort that comes with recognizing that you're part of a system or you may be part of a system that harms other people and not yourself. And there's this deep need that people sometimes feel to avoid that morally uncomfortable feeling. Yeah. I've even heard someone who identifies as a white ally say, I was here to help you, but if you're going to yell at me, then I'm leaving. So I think it makes a lot of sense when Tamara says that it's all about power. Yeah. And and white people are the ones currently dominating American culture. So it makes sense that at least at this point, white people have a lot of control over the conversation about race, right? And and in what tone that conversation happens. So then the next question, right, is why do white people do this? It's really hard for me to imagine that a white person, you know, is doing white talk to like, as a conscious like power move or like an ego thing. It seems like it's because white people are rewarded for doing it. When white people say, I'm not talking about this, they don't have to talk about it. They aren't forced to disrupt their worldview. White talk is just one, you know, bar in the cage of oppression, to borrow Marilyn Fry's metaphor, that helps keep white supremacy or white privilege in place. So it does this by distracting us from deep issues. It allows us to what W.E.B. Du Bois calls flutter, to, to just sort of dip down and, and touch racism in a way that recenters our goodness or makes us feel comfortable about talking about racism and doesn't make us feel like we're bad people. So white people constantly steer conversations back to um, meritocracy, to our own goodness, to uh, one-size-fits-all discrimination. And there's a whole host mm-hmm. of list of these patterns. 
Uh, so white talk is used to derail, redirect conversations, to dismiss counterarguments, to silence, to interrupt, and to collude with other whites in creating a culture of goodness, which makes it really difficult for us to critique the white world. So we mentioned before the kind of shutting down that happens with white talk. White people are effectively closing themselves off from knowledge. But another thing that's happening as a result is that people of color aren't allowed to share their experience of the world. Yeah, so Alison Bailey calls this shutting down epistemic closure, uh, which she defined for us in our discussion. Yeah, epistemic closure is just a fancy word for I'm not going to go there. So you close down in order to protect your sense of goodness. And that's a huge and testimonial injustice. And I've watched this in the classroom. Students of color will say over and over and over again, things that are happening in the community, the surveillance that happens to them on campus, the, the policing in the community. And white folks are just like, are you sure? You know, there's this doubt. And so you haven't been heard. And then so can you, you can imagine what this does to bodies of color as they move through the world is you've got microaggressions and then you've got no uptake. So the, the correct response to that is, are you sure that was about race? No. The correct response is, are you okay? <laughs> right? Is this something that, that we need to have a conversation about in our community? Yeah, I, I think this epistemic closure, this shutting down takes many forms. Sandra, when we first discussed white talk, you brought up another variation of epistemic closure. There's been something that I've been noticing recently at every conversation about race that I've taken part in. There's always one white person who points out that the problem in the community lies with the people who aren't there. And what they're really saying is that to show up to a conversation about race as a white person means that your job is done. You are the good white person. And the white people out there, those are the bad white people. And I just want to go to one conversation in which the white people present are willing to talk about the things that they do wrong and what they can do to be better, instead of deflecting blame and listing their anti-racism resumes. These conversations should be moments of deep self-reflection that motivate us to treat those around us better. The reality is that we all hold prejudices. We were socialized this way. And white people would do well to admit our shortcomings in order to progress. And that's a great example of just how insidious white talk and epistemic closure can be. Um, so I've been that white person who's like, where are the other white people? Um, and it never occurred to me that I was, by doing that, creating epistemic closure until you pointed it out. Um, and, and so there are other equally as subtle forms of shutting down that take place. White talk has a somatic or a bodily component to it. Uh, you watch white folks, you know, get tense uh, in the presence of people of color talking about race. And so what does that do to bodies of color? The failure to want that knowledge and shut down is harmful because you're saying it's not worth me knowing these things. And I know that when I shut down, I hurt you and I'm still willing to take that position. Mm -hmm. So it's not just that, oh, goody, white people get knowledge and we can walk away. It's no, the fact that we don't have that knowledge, that's the problem that we shut down and we don't see harm. We don't see pain. We don't see injustice. And that is big. Allison and Tamara discussed examples of when you can actually see epistemic closure happening. So when you mentioned, Allison, body language, you can see that. And you had a couple images mm -hmm. in your talk yesterday. Mm -hmm. With, and it happened to be two white students, and you can see, like, one woman has her, I don't know if her hands were crossed across her. across her chest, her heart, yeah. right? She's protecting yeah. her heart. Yeah, and, and I'm not going to engage. This is my shield, and I don't have to. You know, I can mm -hmm. stay here and be a testament to my right not to engage a reality. 
And then the, the white man, his body language was not loving at all. You know, it was questioning, it was skeptical. Mm -hmm. It was sort of like, this doesn't make sense to me. Therefore, it has no sense. So if the answer is not just stop performing white talks, stop closing off certain kinds of knowledge, what are white people supposed to do about this? In some of Allison's other work, she makes a very important point about solutions to this problem. She basically says that getting rid of white talk is a misguided way to think about the whole problem. She argues that you can't just make a quick fix in this situation. But she does have some positive views about how white people might begin to change the way they talk about race. I asked her about this in our conversation. Okay, so there's this phenomenon of white talk. What do I do? What do I say? How do I, how do I conduct myself? Mm -hmm. And um, do either of you have some thoughts about what people should be thinking when they're going into these kinds of dialogues? Hmm. Okay. Are there any, do you have any thoughts? Yeah, well, that? you know, nothing that's going <laughs> to, it's immediately going to be like a quick fix. Of course. So one, if the problem and the harm of white talk come from white defensiveness mm -hmm. and refusal to know things about the world and understand their, their perpetuation of harms, um, then that's a very protective identity. Mm -hmm. So one thing I think that white folks need to get good at is taking risks and I can remember being in school and just saying, I just need to get through this conversation on race with like no one seeing me mm -hmm. and not taking risk and not being vulnerable. And what I've come to learn is that you, by making those mistakes, because you're going to make them, you just can't try to be perfect on this. So making mistakes and stopping and saying, having someone call you out, maybe another white person, hopefully, right, who says, no, you know, we don't do that. Um, and learning from those mistakes, I find I can do a lot of work by just being sort of present, listening and being open hearted to what folks have to say mm -hmm. and navigating that in really kind ways. And when things get messy going, we just need to let this settle and circle back because mm -hmm. there's an incubation period for these conversations. So the takeaway here is that we should own up to our mistakes and be willing to make mistakes in the first place. Be vulnerable to screwing up. But most importantly, be willing to apologize when you do mess up. Yeah, it, it's helpful to think about how you would treat somebody that you love. You know, if your best friend says you hurt her, your first response should be to reflect and apologize. The loving way to respond isn't to immediately get defensive and start coming up with excuses. Yeah, it doesn't matter in that moment if she's right or wrong. It's not the issue. When someone you love is hurting, you just listen. It's what Tamara calls the difference between an arrogant and a loving approach to the world. She introduced us to the work of Maria Lugones, who wrote about having an arrogant perception of self and a loving perception of the world. Tamara elaborated on the notions of arrogance and loving. So when you're arrogant, you stand apart. When you're arrogant, you judge. When you're arrogant, you presume rightness mm -hmm. in what you're doing. And you, you shut things out and you put a lid on things that you don't like. I mean, you are like a king in the world. Um, you dominate. But a loving perception is, you know, playful and open and willing to take risks. But I think it comes from a, a fundamental valuing of another person. And to me, like in the classroom where I'm thinking about interactions, that just that simple, elegant, but very profound contrast is helpful to sort of understand like that, that there are at least two very different ways of going through the world. And we know when we're one and we know when we're the other because we've had experiences of both. 
And I think the challenge for people with dominance um, by class, by race, whatever the important social axis is in a situation is to re- is to realize when am I arrogant mm-hmm. and what am mm-hmm. I trying to achieve in that arrogance and what would be a loving way of being in this space. This idea of arrogance versus loving doesn't just apply to interpersonal interactions, though. It also plays out in the media. It is very arrogant, if we talk about Eric Garner, to show his murder over and over and over as Mm -hmm. just news, as if we were supposed to not see that it was a murder. Mm -hmm. I mean, if you're a person of color, that's all you saw. And I don't Mm -hmm. know how you could not see that. And then you Mm -hmm. gave the the analog would be... Mm -hmm. The, the murder of two newscasters yeah. that out of respect for their family members was never shown. Mm-hmm. Never. Never shown. So what does that tell me? What does that tell everyone? White lives matter. Black lives are spectacles. That's an arrogant perception of self and reality. I didn't even think about that. When the, when the newscaster uh, murders happened, it sparked this huge debate about auto streaming of video on Facebook, mm-hmm. you know, people were yes. scroll- people were scrolling through, and everyone was outraged yeah. that this thing was just auto playing in uh-huh. front of them. That kind of stuff was happening with yes. the Eric Gardner thing when people posted video of that, but that didn't spark this no. national outrage. Like, like we've been, you know, so people were like, we've been violated by you foisting this mm-hmm. murder on us. Right. But no one said that about them. no, and it's, they it's, didn't see a murder. What did they, they say? Didn't. I mean, when you you had that opening white talk example, uh-huh. how can you be sure? Right, that it was right. How can you not be sure that yeah. this was something that was a, yeah. an atrocity uh-huh. and that had everything to do with race? You heard, and that's the thing with white talk is that it, it doesn't just shut down a conversation. It refuses sort of factual information. Yeah, a man is selling cigarettes and is taken down mm-hmm. for an offense. That is not of that yes. magnitude. You know what mm-hmm, I mean? Mm-hmm. Um, right. And you can't see race in that. So I mean, this the spe- public spectacle thing is chilling um, because the discourse around, and I remember the journalist's name only because it's Allison Bailey Parker, and I keep getting mm-hmm. <laughs> Google oh. alerts. <laughs> so she was protected. The man that was killed with her was protected. And the language around that was, this is a public execution. This is a public execution. But no one said of Trayvon Martin, this is a public execution. Or Eric Gardner, this is a public execution. Or Tamir Rice, this is a public execution. And I could go on. These were all public executions. And there's the fact that those were aired and reinscribed over and over and over again, there's a history behind that. Lynching was a public spectacle. And people made postcards and circulated them. It was entertainment. And so that's chilling. It tells me that we haven't come that far in our, in our visual culture, our cultural representation of black bodies. So part of having an arrogant perception of the world is not seeing things that are right in front of you. Or if you see them, seeing them incorrectly. Um, and there's there's so much talk lately about how the solution or the quick fix to like something like police violence is body cameras. And the thinking there is that if we have visual proof, then maybe we can make sense of it. But the problem is that even when there is photographic proof, right, even when it is smacking us in the face over and over again, we can't see it. Even when there's evidence, we can't see it correctly. So seeing things doesn't help if people refuse to interpret what they see in a loving way. It's a refusal of facts, 
our refusal to see the facts. So the misperceptions, I think maybe we just said this, are part of white talk. Yeah. Because if you're on the receiving end of that, you're like, that's how you see me mm -hmm. all along. You just mm -hmm. saw me as a thug. It doesn't matter mm -hmm. that you know these other things about me. That's what you go back to. Yep. I think that's why Lugones' term, it's not arrogant sensation. It's not that, you know, it's perception. It's the meaning making. Yes. You know, you have things and you choose to interpret them in a way that is very arrogant. To go back to Lugones, because I find her work really useful, too, for teaching this thing. And there's one piece in the uh, this essay on loving playfulness and world traveling mm -hmm. where she says, you know, I am not interested in assigning blame or responsibility. I'm interested in finding a loving way out of this. Mm -hmm. And she's talking to women of color and white women about the dialogues across difference mm -hmm in feminist spaces and how we can't come together and what barriers are even for people that are sort of on board having these talks. But she's like, don't have that conversation. Find it's, Things are tough. We need to find a loving way out of this. There's an immediacy here. Mm -hmm. Rather than figure out who's at fault. Who's at fault is, well, my ancestors never owned slaves. No, that doesn't do anybody any good. Huh. Let's find a loving way out of this. Let's find a loving way out of this. So the takeaway for all of this is to remember that white people have a bank account of white privilege, and white people are not powerless to fight racism. People with privilege have ways to spend down that bank account of privilege to try to dismantle racist structures. Yeah, but at the same time, I like keeping in mind Alison Bailey's idea that there are no quick fixes to this. There's not going to be like one easy, fail-proof solution to all of this. Yeah, white people make mistakes. It's okay. Own up to them. Learn. Grow. When people point out problems in your community, whether that community is a school, a city, or a nation, don't approach the conversation with cynicism. Approach with love and respect. If you're white in America, you've basically hit the life lottery. Even if you think you've had a rough life, there is a very good chance that you'd be worse off if you were having that rough life and were not white. The purpose of this episode is to just get us all thinking about that and to call attention to ways in which people might, with good intentions, make it easier to avoid thinking about these issues. It's been suggested that many people have unearned advantages. This warrants our attention. We also need to think more carefully about what someone's responsibilities are if they come to realize that much of their good fortune is the result of unearned advantage. In all of this, it's worth engaging in a bit of self-scrutiny to make sure we're not avoiding difficult issues for our own comfort. Thanks for listening. If you'd like more information about the topics we've discussed today, visit our show notes for this episode at examiningethics.org. When you visit, be sure to sign up for our newsletter, you'll be entered into our monthly book giveaway. For updates about the podcast, interesting links, and more, follow us on Twitter at Examining Ethics. If you like what you've heard, please consider rating us on iTunes. You can subscribe to the show on iTunes or your favorite podcast app. Examining Ethics with Andy Cullison is hosted by the Janet Prindle Institute for Ethics. Sondra Burton and Christian Weishart produce the show. Our interns are Leah Williams and Jessica Keister. Our music is by Corey Gray and Poddington Bear and can be found online at freemusicarchive.org. 
Examining Ethics is made possible by the generous support of DePaul alumni, friends of the Prindle Institute, and you, the listeners. Thank you for your support.